and welcome to another episode of the Thorax podcast. Today we're going to be talking about the new plural guideline from the British Thoracic Society, which has just been published in Thorax. Joining me are Najib Rahman and Nick Maskell, who, along with Dr. Mark Roberts, chaired the guideline development group. Najib is a professor of respiratory medicine at the University of Oxford, and Nick is a professor of respiratory medicine at the University of Bristol. Hello and welcome. Thank you both for joining us. Thanks. Hi, Kate. Hello. I just want to start by saying well done. I've read all 42 pages of the guideline, um, including the appendices, and it looks like a mammoth achievement. It was last updated in 2010. Why have you decided to revisit the guideline? I, I think that the 2010 guidelines were hugely popular. They were downloaded over 100,000 times, but they haven't been updated for 13 years. And in that 13-year period, we've had significant advances and publications of really good, high-quality randomised control trials, which has really changed the way that we can practice in plural disease. And therefore, it was timely that we updated the guidelines to reflect that new evidence um, and that higher grade of evidence that we've now got in some of the things that we do in plural medicine. Uh, great. And the guideline uh, focuses mainly on the management of spontaneous pneumothorax, um, undiagnosed unilateral pleural effusions, pleural infections and pleural malignancies. And it would be nice then if we could talk about what specifically has changed in the guidelines since, since 2010 in those areas. Nick, with the spontaneous pneumothorax, how has, how has that changed? Well, I think that I could start by just saying there's been two particularly significant randomised control trials in pneumothorax since the last publications, which are now reflected in these updated pneumothorax guidelines. The first was a publication by Brown in the New England Journal looking at conservative management of primary pneumothorax. And the second was a paper by uh, Rob Halifax and Nad Rahman from Oxford called the RAMP study that was published in The Lancet, and that looked at the role of ambulatory care uh, with a vent in people with a primary spontaneous pneumothorax. So I think that those two papers have helped us change the, the flow diagram that we've got for pneumothorax now. And we're asking the clinicians to first assess whether they think the patient is symptomatic with a pneumothorax. The old guidelines split very much into whether it was a primary or secondary. This really is symptom-led guideline. And then the second question we want people to answer is, are there any high-risk characteristics that would mean that we have to be more cautious in their management options? And those are things like attention pneumothorax, significant hypoxia, bilateral pneumothoraces, or whether they've got underlying lung disease. If they have got any of those, then we need to ask the question, is it safe to intervene? And if it is, then most of those patients would get a chest drain as their management. But if the patient isn't symptomatic, then actually there's an increasing role for conservative management of these, and that's reflected in the guideline. And if they are symptomatic, but they don't have those high risk characteristics, then actually patient choice comes into play and the clinician can have a discussion with the patient about whether they want conservative management, an ambulatory device, or a needle aspiration. So that's really quite a big change from the 2010 guidelines and reflects the evidence. Yeah, when I was looking at it, I thought, because I had to, I've learned the 2010 guidelines several times over my 
over university and my career. So I thought the um, change to the structure of it was very interesting. And the addition of the patient preference is good, I think. So I, th- I thought it was, it was a good change. And it's, it's, in some ways, it's actually easier to to use now because it's been simplified. I think it's less convoluted than the 2010 uh, flowchart, I think. Yes, I agree. It's very patient-centred, but it also gives the clinicians some flexibility not only for patient choice, but also what their individual setup is in the hospital. Because if you are going to do more conservative and ambulatory care of pneumothorax, you need to have a robust service in place so that you can see patients in a timely fashion in a sort of like a an ambulatory clinic that runs, you know, five or seven days a week. Mm-hmm. And then NAJ, similarly, so if we're talking about plural infections, how have the guidelines changed since 2010? Yeah, thanks, Kate. So this is a very big change from the previous guidelines, I think. Um, I should start by just thanking all of our committee for putting so much hard work in. To Nick's original point, there's been a huge amount of data that they had to trawl through, and that's a good thing. That means that plural disease is moving forward and we've got decent studies. So although it was a large amount of work, it's very gratifying as someone who practices in plural medicine and does plural research that uh, we did need an updated guideline. And I think plural infections are a great example of that. So I think the major new findings, if we start with the flow charts, I guess, uh, the previous flow chart in 2010, as you know, um, split patients who had non-purulent fluid into those with a pH less than 7.2 and greater than 7.2. It was a rather simple binary split. And the data has moved on since then. Now that less than 7.2 split is still there, but there's a more nuanced split that's between 7.21 and 7.3 something that you can look up in the guideline in which clinicians are allowed to understand that those patients are at at least medium risk of plural infection and importantly bring in other clinical features that might speak to the diagnosis of plural infection. So specifically the plural fluid LDH, the glucose, the CT appearances and the ultrasound appearance. And I think that reflects modern practice and of course it reflects the data. So it's not just an infective uh, illness combined with a low pH, but there's now a bit more nuance there. And I think that will lead to more aggressive management of plural infection, which is a good thing because the, the outcomes are so poor. And then I think the other two major changes are use of the RAPID score. So the RAPID score, of course, is the um, now completely validated prognostic score in plural infection that originated from myself and Nick and then validated by John Corcoran. We're encouraging use of the RAPID score as part of the treatment guideline so that you can triage patients into those with the highest potential mortality risk. In all honesty, we don't know for certain that using the RAPID score will result in reduction in mortality, but it's certainly important for clinicians and patients to understand if they're in a very high-risk group, as that may well influence how aggressive a treatment you plan upon, or even if you go down the palliative route if they've got a very high mortality. And then I think the third area, which is based on uh, the major randomised trial of MIS-2 that uh, Nick and I were both part of, um, is use of TPA DNAs uh, in patients who are failing medical therapy. And we've also suggested that once you've initially put in the chest tube and given antibiotics, um, that the decision point for further therapy, that being either surgery or TPA DNAs, should be much earlier. So in the 2010 guideline, it was seven days. We've now suggested an assessment of 48 hours. I should be clear that the view of the guideline and both of our view is that the optimal treatment at that point is surgery if the patient is able to have surgery. 
Whereas if they're not able to have surgery immediately or if there's a delay to surgery, then we've recommended either TPA DNAs or if that's not possible, then saline flushes, which came from a randomized trial um, that Nick conducted. So I think this ends up with much more aggressive treatment in pleural infection, much more aggressive um, case identification and diagnosis. And that is deeply suitable given that the mortality remains 15, 20% at one year and the average hospital stay is still 14 days. So we hope this will enable clinicians to be a bit more aggressive. Thank you very much. That's very, very interesting. I um, Sorry, were you saying that people should go to surgery after 48 hours if they can with a like an empyema that's not responding to antibiotics? Yeah, so if they're not responding to antibiotics and chest tube drainage and we've given some parameters, okay. then what we're suggesting is at 48 hours you make a clinical assessment. Now, I don't think any of us are imagining that patients would get operated on that same day, but we're saying that at that point you should be talking to your surgical colleagues about whether the patient's suitable for surgery and if they are, identify failure as early as you can and get them, get them treated as soon as you can. We do know from the surgical literature that delays to surgical referral result in a higher failure rate of surgery and also the need for a bigger and more mortal operation. So that's kind of important, yeah. Okay, thank you very much. Nick, we'll just go back to you and we'll talk now about the management of an undiagnosed unilateral pleural effusion and how those guidelines have changed. Yes, thanks very much. I think that the guidelines still focus on patient safety and the important role of thoracic ultrasound when investigating unilateral effusion in everybody. And the clinical history and the clinical examination and the initial assessment with an ultrasound is obviously the first step that we would still recommend. But we're now asking people to ask themselves a question after they've done that as to whether they believe that pleural malignancy is suspected. And if it is, the next question we want to ask people is, is it safe to actually perform a pleural aspiration? And if it is, then under ultrasound guidance, removing uh, 50 mils of fluid and sending it off for the standard basic tests is still appropriate. If it's not, then doing a staging CT scan because you're suspecting malignancy that includes the thorax, the abdomen and the pelvis is appropriate. Where they are different is that if we are suspecting malignancy, such as mesothelioma, where we know the cytology yield is poor and on ultrasound there is an area that is suitable for a pleural biopsy, we're saying that in selected cases, patients could have a biopsy at the same time as that initial aspiration uh, in cases of likely pleural malignancy. And we're also saying that there may also be a role for going direct to a local anaesthetic thoracoscopy in patients with suspected mesothelioma if the because the cytology yield is low, and that would also be appropriate in some settings rather than waking a week or 10 days for the cytology to come back. So I think that that's probably the most important change that I would say in the investigation pathway. But we focus on some special tests and what those are in certain circumstances and also talk about the role of PET scanning in selected cases where we're failing to get a diagnosis on, on the more standard tests. Can I just come in there very quickly? I think, so the 2010 guideline suggested you should use ultrasound for the safety parameters, didn't it? And 
through great work done by Nick nationally, actually, ultrasounds have become embedded in training for all of us, and that's great. Uh, I think the real inflection in this guideline is uh, ultrasound is de facto used for fluid management and for safety of putting a tube in. I think it's now turning in the 2023 guideline to becoming a diagnostic tool and something that helps you both in pleural infection, for example, but also in malignancy. It helps you to slightly re-stratify the patient and decide what to do next. And I imagine that as practice embeds, that will happen more and more. Of course, in order to be able to do a pleural biopsy, you have to have those real-time skills. So it's not applicable to everybody. But I think we are using ultrasound at the bedside, not just as a rule-in, rule-out for fluid, but now increasingly as a triage system for is it malignant or is it infection? I I fully support all of those comments. I think that they're all excellent points, Naj. I, I think that the ultrasound can help us go down one pathway or another. So malignant disease can often be investigated entirely as an outpatient if the ultrasound findings are consistent with that. Whereas for pleural infection, most patients would need to come in as an inpatient. So it's a very important tool to triage the patient. Is ultrasound-guided pleural biopsy something that you imagine respiratory trainees will be trained in? I, I don't think everybody needs to be trained but I do think that it is a very useful skill. And I would imagine that a lot of trainees would like to develop that skill if possible. Yeah, I'd I'd agree with that, Kate. I think um, it is a very useful skill, no doubt. It takes a fair amount of practice, though, because you need to be able to see the needle all the way through. And that's just a question of having lots of experience doing it. I am aware that BTS are moving forward with a procedure training statement and uh, I'm uh, neither Nick or I are on that committee but um, I'm not clear if that will be part of it. Okay great thank you. I think Naj it's your turn again we're going to talk about malignant pleural effusions and what's changed in the guidelines. I think this is a really important new iteration. The 2010 guidelines if we just go back to history suggested very much that if the patient uh, was symptomatic and benefited from an aspiration that definitive management of MPE should first be a talc pleuridesis if they had an expandable, so a non-trapped lung. And then the indwelling pleural catheter solution was very much reserved for those who either failed pleuridesis in about 30% or those who had a trapped lung from the get-go because of significant studies, including the TIME2 study that Nick and I were part of and some other studies. We've elevated IPCs to first choice management and that kind of reflects what's happening in normal clinical practice. So in the presence of um, an expansile lung, you have a free choice um, that's an important discussion between clinician and patient between either a pleurodesis with those risks and benefits or an indwelling catheter with those risks and benefits. I think for trap lung, we've remained saying that IPCs are probably the optimal treatment strategy, although we've been clear that some patients with limited prognosis could possibly have repeated aspirations. And then the other major two areas, again, built on major randomized trials, both run by Nick actually, uh, are the status of thoracoscopic poudrage and the use of talc via an IPC. So if I do the first one first, thoracoscopic poudrage traditionally has been felt to be more effective. In fact, the TAPS trial that um, Nick conducted here demonstrated there was no benefit over a talc slurry pleuridesis. Now, what does that mean? It means if you are doing a thoracoscopy, taking a biopsy, it's perfectly legitimate to use talc as a poudrage there and then, no problem. You get it in, it's nice and dry. 
However, if a patient has established malignant effusion and wants a pleuridesis, it is not rational at all to say, well, I will choose to do it thoracoscopically outside a, a clinical trial anyway, um, because we, we showed in that study that um, small board, uh, 12 French tube with slurry was just as good as doing it thoracoscopically. And then concerning the IPC um, with uh, I, Nick's IPC plus study and then a study from the USA called ASAP and one from Australia, what we now do with the IPC patients, so patients who choose to have an IPC with an expansile lung, we would recommend that if the patient wants to get rid of the indwelling catheter, that we go for what some people have called active IPC management. So that would be a combination probably of daily drainage if uh, it's tolerable. And probably more important in my view is assessing them again at 10 days or two weeks. And if they have a fully expansile lung, then give talc via uh, the IPC as an outpatient. And Nick's New England paper, um, IPC Plus, demonstrated that that was safe and effective and increased your pleuridesis rate from about 25% to about 55%. So that's um, a good modality of treatment. So it's two things. Firstly, it's a kind of a one-to-one -one free choice of IPC or talc. And then secondly, if you're using an IPC, we now know much more about the expansile lung population that you should A, drain them daily if you can, and B, think about using talc. I, I would just proviso all of that with a reminder to all of us that the treatment of malignant pleural effusion is still symptomatic. And so we have to just be a little careful about making patients drain themselves every day with huge amounts of pain in order to achieve a pleuridesis. I think we have to balance the, the pain and discomfort and difficulty of draining every day with the potential benefits, remembering that we're doing this to hopefully improve quality of life overall. Nick, did you want to jump in there? I, I fully agree with, with all of that now, I was just going to add that uh, trap lung is probably more common than the literature would suggest. And just as the modality for how to manage the malignant effusion should be patient-centred, so should the draining regime from an IPC. And if they've got trapped lung, then often the best thing to do is just to do small drainages when they are symptomatic uh, and, and reduce the frequency and the amount that you drain in one episode. Thanks, Nick. I, I agree with that fully. The other thing that I think we're not brilliant at, and we allude to this in the guideline, is there are selected patients with malignant pleural effusion, and of course we all know that's incurable, but selected fit young patients with a reasonable prognosis where in the trap lung situation, one should think about calling the surgeons and having a discussion. I think there is room for pleurectomies in highly selected patients. I don't think there's any room for it in the vast majority, but it should be noted that Gary Lee is doing a study called Ample 3 where he's comparing IPCs um, to surgery right now. We don't have the read from that study. But I think in your practices, it is important to maintain that that is a possible treatment, as is infrequent aspiration in selected patients too. So IPCs are definitely the workhorse in trap lung, but there are a couple of other options, yeah. Great, thank you. Is there anything that you think is particularly interesting or important or should be highlighted to trainees in the guideline, if there's one thing you'd want them to take from it? Yeah, I mean, it's a pretty chunky guideline, isn't it? I, I guess the big things that they will get called about are conservative management and ambulatory management of pneumothorax. Those are some of the biggest new changes. And I think uh, trainees should be thoroughly aware of 
the safety parameters and the patient choice parameters around those two decisions. And let me just summarize this way. It's fairly simple to put in an ambulatory device. It's much more complex to think about what the follow-up should be. And uh, I think the same about indwelling catheters. They're, they're easy to place. It's the follow-up and the complications that matter. I would focus on those aspects and being aware of what your local hospitals do, what their abilities are, and what needs to be in place to safely manage that stuff. And then uh, just flipping aside to plural infection, uh, again, I think there'll be a lot of referrals now for TPA DNAs in patients, given how much prominence we've given it. I think a thorough understanding of the doses that should be used, how you assess for treatment response, the ability to reduce doses in case of bleeding, all of that stuff I think is probably an important area because I imagine that's what people will be referred. I, I would fully support those, those two points and just add one other, which is that if you follow the pathway for an undiagnosed effusion, you will get you know, a significant minority of patients that come to the end of the pathway and you still don't have a firm diagnosis. And we often are managing quite frail patients uh, that might be quite elderly. And actually at the end of that pathway, it is appropriate sometimes to say, we don't know for sure, but what we're going to do is an interval scan three or four months down the line and see if anything changes. What we're trying to do with the guideline is make sure that we've excluded treatable conditions. And we know that we might be left with some patients that have got likely malignancy, but the tests that we've done haven't proven it. And an interval imaging is okay in those settings. Is there anything in the guideline that is controversial or that differs from other international guidelines on the same subject? I think that the pneumothorax pathway is novel, does reflect the evidence, but is pretty much in keeping with the um, the new sort of ERS guidelines. So the European guidelines are pretty similar to that new guideline that we have produced for the BTS. I, I think that the plural infection uh, use of TPA and DNAs does vary probably uh, around the world. It's used extensively in America. It's used a lot in the UK. Uh, but perhaps our colleagues on the continent in Europe don't use that combination of drugs quite as much. So we, you could say that that might be a one contentious uh, area. What do you think, Nadj? Yeah, uh, I agree. I mean, I think the pneumothorax guideline, I, I'm really pleased with the algorithm we've come up with because it's much more it's both more simple and more nuanced at the same time. So it kind of doesn't make you falsely uh, make difficult decisions about is it primary or secondary? It's just all about risk. And I, I think clinicians think in a risk-based way, or we should at least, so that's a good thing. There's more complexity as to what you can offer. And uh, the European guidelines were very good, but I think we've been really precise about what's on offer and what the priority should be for the patient. So I think it differs there. The plural infection guidelines are very similar in the text to the ERS guideline, uh, the ERS statement on plural infection that Ehab Badawi led on very well um, a couple of years ago. But we are very deliberately in the BTS guideline being more aggressive in terms of a wider diagnostic criterion and then an earlier assessment for treatment failure at 48 hours. So uh, I think those are important. Uh, to Nick's point, I, I agree that TPA DNAs is de facto for most of us in the UK and may not be so for other 
areas or other countries, but then there is the option to go to saline irrigation as well. So yeah, I think there's a couple of differences there. I think the malignant effusion side is probably rather similar to both the ATS guideline in its big picture view, as well as the more recent ERS guideline. I guess we've pushed quite hard on the active IPC management aspect, which is important too. And then I just wanted to know, where do you think within plural research that the evidence is the weakest? And what do you think research should focus on next? I think that's a really good question. I think that secondary pneumothorax studies are very difficult to do uh, because of the patient population. And we've got a lack of evidence there. We've got some nice evidence for primary spontaneous pneumothorax, but we need more. But I I would say secondary pneumothorax, difficult area. Um, And we still haven't got a definitive study of surgery versus TPA and DNA with, with hard endpoints. So I would say those are two areas that we really need to focus on in the, in the next few years. I thoroughly agree with that. And, and Nick's um, taken the, the most important two areas for sure, and, and we're hopeful to move forward with those. I'll just add a couple of others if people are interested in slightly different areas. I think non-specific pleuritis is a, a really difficult area. So what do I mean by that? Following Nick's diagnostic pathway, you've done a biopsy. It's not cancer. It's not TB. What do you then do? What we know so far is that anywhere between 8 and 15% will end up with malignancy. But So my question is, what's the diagnosis in the other 85%? And we're not great at that yet. And we do keep people in follow-up for a couple of years. And I'm sure that's very uncertain for patients. So it would be quite nice to have some biomarkers and some better histology or or molecular analysis that could tell us what the final diagnosis is. That's one area. In malignant effusion, I I think we've answered some of the bigger questions on optimal management. And uh, I mean, there are some controversies about, for example, joint procedures of thoracoscopy, pudrage and IPC that we should answer fairly soon, the so-called accelerated pleuridesis. I think we'd need better data on trapped lung myself. As Nick is saying, it is more common than we think from the clinical trials. In clinical practice, I think it's about one in three patients have a trapped lung. And the optimal management, determining who's going to benefit from the various things that we do, I think would be worthwhile. Uh, I'll mention one more, which is the treatment of benign so-called effusions. So hepatic hydrothorax and cardiac-related effusions. Nick's group are doing some work on this, and we desperately need better data in that area, yeah. Thank you both for your time. It's been really interesting to talk to you. Thanks very much, Kate. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Thorax podcast. We will be publishing regular podcasts about some of the best content on the journal. Please subscribe on your preferred platform to get it directly on your device each month. We'd also like to hear from you, so please get in touch through our social media channels or leave us a review on the Thorax podcast page on iTunes. Thank you and see you next month.